Matt, you wrote about a case, I believe last week, yep, January 16th, and it was what we call a pretaliation case involving J.P. Morgan. And I thought not only was it incredibly interesting, but it really sent a signal that language which precludes anyone, underscore anyone, from taking information to regulatory authorities is always going to be problematic. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to this week's episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. In this week's episode, Matt and I take a deep dive into an SEC enforcement action against J.P. Morgan Securities for pretaliation language. The thing that makes this case so interesting, it did not involve employees, but customers who had come up or made a settlement with J.P. Morgan over some issue. This greatly expands whistleblower protection. First, we're going to have a word from our sponsor, Ethico. In the intricate world of ethics and compliance, each second is precious, and slow case closures are more than just delays, they're missed opportunities. Enter Ethico. Our solution revolutionizes case management, cutting case closure times in half, and turning every challenge into a chance for improvement. Imagine a workspace where efficiency and compliance coexist harmoniously. Don't just dream of faster resolutions, make it your reality. Visit ethico.com slash cpn today to book a demo and dive into our exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Empower your team with the tools they deserve. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome back, Matt. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Matt, you wrote about a case, I believe, last week, yep, uh, January 16th. And it was what we call a pretaliation case involving J.P. Morgan. And I thought not only was it incredibly interesting, but it really sent a signal that language which precludes anyone, underscore anyone, from taking information to regulatory authorities uh, is always going to be problematic. Uh, but before we maybe get into that in your interpretation... Uh, could you lay out the facts for us? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yes, this is a pretaliation case that the SEC brought against uh, J.P. Morgan Securities, which is a brokerage within the J.P. Morgan uh, empire. Um, but, you know, I think many of our devoted listeners here will already have some acquaintance with pretaliation and what it allegedly entails. And it does entail a company applying some sort of restriction on a party speaking about corporate misconduct they know about to regulators. But up until now, all the pretaliation cases, Tom, that you and I have discussed or that maybe listeners have seen elsewhere, they have been restrictions that a company has placed on employees. And now, for the first time, as I understand it, I don't recall this happening before, J.P. Morgan Securities was sanctioned for a pretaliation clause that they imposed upon customers. So now we have expanded the range of who might fall victim to a pretaliation claim, or really the company is, I suppose, the victim here, um, but who might be included in what the SEC defines as a pretaliation. Um, really, as you said, it could be any party at all. Now, the facts are as follows, that uh, J.P. Morgan Securities, for any client that had some sort of a dispute with J.P. Morgan, that resulted in some sort of a payment or a credit to the client of $1,000 or more, that client also had to sign a statement saying that they 
did have the right to respond to an SEC subpoena, but they did not have the right to go contact the SEC voluntarily about misconduct that they might know about. And if you are in the brokerage and you've had a dispute with JP Morgan, maybe you are aware that maybe you're the victim of that misconduct. And now you would not be allowed to go and tell the SEC what JP Morgan had done. Um, exactly how the SEC came to know about this, I am not clear. That wasn't really disclosed in the settlement order. Uh, but JP Morgan wound up getting a sanction of $18 million. That is the other big thing in this retaliation case is that we have a new class of people covered in retaliation claims. Uh, but this is the biggest retaliation enforcement action we have seen by far. Uh, previously, I think last year it was a different financial firm, D.E. Shaw. They were sanctioned $10 million. Uh, everything else that came before that was 500000 maybe a million, 200000 relatively small dollars. It was not $10 million and it wasn't $18 million like J.P. Morgan. So we have a wider range of people who might cause retaliation risk for your company. We have a higher fine. And Tom, the last interesting thing is when did these clauses happen? Um, as recently as June of 2023, JP Morgan was still using these confidential settlements with uh, customers that got stuck in the JP, uh, SEC's craw. Um, so that's why this case is so interesting. There's a whole lot of new in what previously had been kind of a cut and dried sort of securities and events. I don't want to say I told you so, but I will say you told us so. <laughs> and you've been telling us so for years. And more than telling us so, you've laid out previously how to remedy this situation. And you laid that out one more time in the told you so section of this blog post. So I guess how do we get the message to corporations that there is a fix and the fix, if not completely painless, is about as painless as it gets because it is boilerplate contract language that can and should be put literally into every contract. I, I, I guess that's the part that sort of baffles me here. I, You know, I wonder, Tom, if maybe the folks at J.P. Morgan Securities and perhaps others just didn't realize that contracts with customers might also be subject to retaliation enforcement. I think at this point, I hope at this point, most companies now know that you can't do this with your employees. We have seen at least, I don't know, a dozen, maybe more retaliation enforcements since I think it started in late 2016. And typically it has goes in, in waves. We had a wave of retaliation enforcement in 2016, 2017. Then it kind of died out. Then it came back in 2021, 22. Um, but then we also saw a jump in when or the, the fines that companies are paying. Like D.E. Shaw, suddenly the fines went from maybe a million to 10 million. Now they've gone from 10 million to 18 million. The thing that's stuck in my mind, Tom, is that both D.E. Shaw and J.P. Morgan Securities were using retaliation clauses in very recent terms. Um, so I have it now. The SEC order says that J.P. Morgan was using these confidential settlement releases with the problematic language from 2020 until July of 2023. That was six months ago, and they were still doing this. Retaliation has been around for nearly a decade. 
Um, so I think that the SEC is trying to get the message out at this point that they've had it. If you don't yet know that you shouldn't be doing this and you're still doing it after you've seen other enforcement actions, we're going to imply bigger fines and much bigger fines. Um, you know, I get it that JP Morgan is a very large bank. Perhaps 18 million isn't that much of a hit, but it is easily the biggest hit we've ever seen for a simple fix. Because every time you read these settlement orders, the fix is always the same. The remediation action is always the same. They delete the language from the uh, agreements, whether that is a severance package, confidential release from customers or some other sort of contract. You delete the language. You tell everybody who's ever signed it that, by the way, we've changed our policies. You are, of course, free to go to the SEC or any other regulator whenever you'd like. This is not that hard. This is a glorified cut and paste job. Now, for large organizations with contracts all over the place to different parties, maybe is stored in different data warehouses, I can see that the mechanics of this might be somewhat tricky to execute. But the basic idea is that you find the problematic language, you delete it, you put in better language that's clear. If necessary, you tell anybody who signed the old language that you don't have to pay attention to that anymore. That's it. That's the remediation. That's all. And Tom, the other thing that gets to me is that in almost no cases have we ever actually seen a company enforce one of these retaliation clauses. It's like they're an afterthought. And then the company might years later say, oh, oh crap, we shouldn't have done this. Uh, let's fix it. And then the SEC finds them. And I kind of wonder if that's what happened with JP Morgan Securities. They're like, oh, wait, should we maybe have not done this with customers too? We, we, we always thought it was just employees. It's with anyone. And Tom, if I, you will indulge me, I can even give a direct quote from the director of enforcement at, SC, at the SEC, Grabir Gruwal, who said, quote, whether it's in your employment contracts, settle agreements, or elsewhere, you simply cannot include provisions that prevent individuals from contacting the SEC with evidence of wrongdoing. Period. That's it. So I, I don't care what the stakeholder group is or who signed the contract or what the contract's about or where it is or if it's in this data silo or some other data silo. You can't do it. You have to find them and you have to fix it. Um, I'm not even sure what else we have to say about this. Well, here's uh, first of all, I'll always indulge. You don't have to ask for permission. Uh, but second of all, here's why I found this case not only so interesting, but perhaps so important. It's that the SEC and our other agencies who have levied fines to enforce the retaliation are only a part of the ongoing legal landscape involving whistleblowers and whistleblower retaliation and bystander or other retaliation. And I think that by the regulators requiring this language to be inserted in literally every contract where a report could be made, it sends a clear signal to judges that bystanders uh, to whistleblowers should and could be or could and should be protected and that this is going to expand the legal protection of all those who report nefarious conduct, uh, illegal acts, sexual harassment, or others beyond simply those that it's simply uh, that have been the uh, unfortunately uh, received those those actions or had to bear those those burdens, and uh, I, I just think that we're going to see 
more and more protection for a wider variety of those who bring these kinds of claims. And that's why I think this case really is a harbinger of a much broader legal discussion in courts uh, beyond the, the regulatory framework we're talking about for this case. You know, Tom, that actually, that is a good avenue to sort of widen the aperture here that I think for most compliance officers struggling with, what are we supposed to do? Uh, these retaliation clauses that get the SEC so upset are close cousins to confidential disclosure or confidential settlement agreements with non-disclosure clauses that you might see in sexual harassment clauses or cases. Um, and for example, once the Me Too movement came about, uh, various states started saying, no, companies, you can't impose a non-disclosure agreement on a settlement for sexual harassment. And so it gets to a broader point that compliance officers really should perhaps engage in like a, a regulatory assessment of what state laws, what securities laws, what federal whistleblower protection laws apply to my company that would prevent us from keeping quiet about what? Securities violations? Can't keep quiet about that. Uh, sexual harassment settlements? Can't keep quiet about that. There are probably other sorts of either flagrant legal violations or civil litigation disputes that you no longer can compel the other party to keep quiet that try and get a handle on that and then step back and say, where are all of our contracts? Really, you could argue that this is one big giant contract management challenge um, and then go through and figure out, do these contracts, do we know where they are? Do we know who signed them? Do we have copies of them all? Do we know how to get in touch with the other party that had countersigned it? And then do we have any problematic language? And if so, how do we correct it? Uh, and then how do we notify the other party that you have to or you now have this newfound freedom to discuss if you would like? Um, Tom, the last point I will say for anybody else is looking for some good nuts and bolts remediation practices to follow. One case that was fairly recent that provides some good remediation is the CBRE pre-taliation case that the SEC settled. I think it was last year. Uh, CBRE walked away with a $1.4 million fine. But more than that, the, the SEC really praised CBRE for four specific steps that the company took to try and cure its pretaliation problem. Um, you know, swiftly looking to identify all the problematic clauses. I think they did it within about a month of learning that, okay, the SEC is looking at us on this. We have to cure this right now, regardless of when the SEC might pounce with a settlement proposal or an enforcement action of some kind. Um, they reviewed all of the templates. CBRE is a global company. They have a lot of different templates in a lot of different countries and places, found them all. Um, they were updated their code of conduct. They were training members of the compliance team worldwide on what the SEC rules say, you could easily extend that to train compliance people worldwide on any other confidential settlement sort of regulations we'd have to worry about, like non-disclosures for a sexual harassment settlement or something like that, um, and then methodically work through curing the, the problematic language, reaching out to the other parties. Um, I found the four bullet points very informative. I included them in my post about this, but you could go straight to the SEC settlement document for CBRE as well. 
you know, and really, like I said before, a lot of this is not that hard to grasp what you're supposed to do. The mechanics of it might be hard if you have a convoluted contracting system, but if legal and HR and compliance are allegedly all on the same page and holding hands and singing Kumbaya, it shouldn't be that hard. The, um, I really think it's going to lead to a much broader discussion or opening of the aperture, as you so artfully said. Um, I hope that uh, every compliance officer and indeed contracts lawyer will read one or more of your blog posts because in every one of them, you lay out how to fix the problem, including in this one, as you just said, with the CBCRE. So um, I think this brings us to the end of uh, this episode, Matt. I can't wait to see what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. The Compliance Podcast Network is sponsored by Ethico. Ethico provides compliance champions like yourself an ethics and compliance optimization system built to turn goals and guidelines into real ROI for your program. We've linked to Ethico in the show notes, but if you'd like more information, go to ethico.com slash CPM. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review to Compliance Into the Weeds or any of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network that you'd have enjoyed. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.